Welcome to Whores Talk Whore. We're not really whores. We just like wordplay. Hello, welcome to Horace Talk Horror. I'm Sharon. And I'm Melinda. This is going to be our first episode where we discuss cults. Mindy and I both find cults to be completely fascinating. We're not going to be talking about the history or origin of cults. Uh, We didn't really want to get into that. And also, everyone's heard of Jim Jones and Jonestown, Heaven's Gate, and the Manson family. We didn't want to discuss famous cults that everyone's already heard of. So instead, Mindy and I picked a cult that each of us had never heard of before and decided to research that cult. So this week, I'm going to be going first and talk about the Fall River cult. And then next week, Mindy is going to cover realism. So, all right, Mindy, are you ready to hear about the Fall River cult? I am ready, and I'm very impressed with your pronunciation of realism. (laughs) I made sure I watched a YouTube video on how to pronounce it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, please inform me. I'm dying to know. All right, so the Fall River cult murders are a series of three unusual murders thought to have been carried out by a satanic cult in Fall River, Massachusetts in the late 1970s and early 80s. I do want to give a trigger warning for descriptions of torture and sexual abuse. But let's begin with a little bit of the history of Fall River, Massachusetts. So Fall River was once the largest textile producing center in the United States during the 19th century. And now I'm going to give a brief 15 minute lecture on the history of textile production in the U.S. Oh, yay. (laughs) All right. Not really. (laughs) This is the most exciting episode ever. All right. And everyone just shot off this podcast. All right. You know, I think you just lost your brother with uh, not talking about textile production. <laughs> right? Yeah. We'll be like expecting a huge drop and there's like one listener drop. It's Jim. <laughs> I will not be going into a lecture on the history of textile production in the U.S. I'm sorry if I disappointed anyone <laughs> who was looking forward to that discussion. Um, but By the late 1970s, the national landscape came to be redefined by recession, unemployment, and rising crime rates. The once prosperous textile city of Fall River was hit particularly hard. Factories closed, buildings were abandoned, and the downtown area had become a total wasteland, leaving behind an economic void that provided fertile ground for a thriving trade in drugs and sex work. Amongst this urban decay, a series of murders took place between October 1979 and February 1980. Two young women, both local sex workers, had been bound, raped, tortured, and bludgeoned to death. A third victim's body would never be found beyond a skull fragment and clumps of hair left behind in a nearby forest. The investigation into the brutal killings resulted in a public frenzy, leading people to believe that the murders were part of a devil-worshipping sex-working ring that performed rituals and human sacrifices deep within the area's forest. No doubt these notions were fueled by the satanic panic that terrified people throughout the 80s and even into the 90s. I am going to give a little bit of history about how they the uh, satanic panic started. I think that's a little bit more interesting to cover that instead of uh, the history of textile production in the U.S. Much more appropriate for your listeners. Yeah. Um, So leading up to the satanic panic in the 80s, there were a number of factors that contributed to it. 
There was the Manson family in the late 60s, which culminated in a string of mass murders in the summer of 1969 that shocked the nation and put organized ritualistic killing into small town America's brains. Because before that, I don't think people were thinking much about satanic killings in uh, suburban America. That same year, occultist Anton LaVey published the Satanic Bible, which became the seminal work of modern Satanism in the key text for the Church of Satan, a group LaVey had officially founded in 1966. There was the 1971 publication of William Peter Blatty's best-selling novel, The Exorcist, and the blockbuster 1973 film adaptation with its claims of being based on a true story. There was a growing fascination with the occult that also coincided with the rise of a number of extremely well-publicized serial killing cases that took place in the 70s from uh, the Zodiac, the Alphabet Killer, both of whom used ritualistic patterns in their killings, neither of whom were ever caught, by the way. There was also Ted Bundy, John Wayne Gacy, the Hillside Stranglers, and David Berkowitz, a.k.a. the Son of Sam. Then in the 80s, we started seeing the faces of missing children on milk cartons, the mass panic surrounding the 1982 Tylenol murders, poison and razor blades, and Halloween candy, even though technically there was only one lone Halloween candy killer, Ronald Clark O'Brien, uh, it's still, to this day, people are still concerned about checking Halloween candy for poison or razor blades. Um, I'm sure, Mindy, when you were trick-or-treating as a child, your parents always uh, checked your candy for you to make sure that it was safe. Oh, absolutely. I had to dump it out on the dining room table and everybody had to inspect to make sure nothing was opened. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Um, so not surprisingly, Christian fundamentalists would play a leading role in instilling fear in the public that a terrifying unknown evil could be lurking right around the corner. They tapped into the social anxieties of the day and found broad support among concerned parents, uh, ours included, with more <laughs> women joining the workforce and increasing numbers of teenagers left to their own devices, there is a new level of fear and uncertainty within the nuclear family. The threats of one's children falling victim to some crazed cult seemed very real, or so the public was led to believe. I was just going to say that I think that we could do a whole episode on the reasonings or the quote-unquote real reasonings behind the satanic panic because like I've remained silent this whole time just because I'm like if I even make a comment this is going to be a three-hour episode but this is a very good overview of the basics thank you Cher and I just wanted to point that out you're welcome and yeah none of it really has to do with satan it's like just <laughs> right exactly. totally um <laughs> and you'll yeah I have a just a couple more examples and you'll see just how insane people were about the whole satanic panic and just taking it to such great extremes. No surprise, the media also played a huge role in stoking the public's fear and fueling misconceptions surrounding occult practices. In 1988, that piece of shit, Geraldo Rivera, uh, created a lurid documentary titled Devil Worship, Exposing Satan's Underground, which became the highest rated television documentary to air up to that point. I do not remember that happening, and I would love to find a recording of that. Just throwing that out there into the universe. 
I think on YouTube you can find that documentary. I know I kind of want to watch it just to like laugh at it. <laughs> totally. Because um, I can't stand Geraldo. He's he's one of those reporters that is just, I think, totally in it for the fame and the money and doesn't care what he reports. Really? I would, I'm shocked to hear you say that, Sharon. (laughs) (laughs) Are you? And isn't he also on Fox News now? Isn't he like a huge Fox News journalist? I have no idea. I I was just being sarcastic because he's an idiot. (laughs) Totally. In my opinion. In my opinion. Um, In 1991, there was a 2020 episode that was famously televised and it showed an official Roman Catholic exorcism. Also something I would like to find and watch. Maybe a double feature. The uh, (laughs) Geraldo devil worshiping documentary followed up with the 2020 exorcism video. And then there was evangelical documentaries like Hell's Bells that attempted to tie rock music to the occult. Because we all know famous rock stars, they're hiding them satanic messages in their music. (laughs) There were even police training videos. I know this is probably a huge shock (laughs) that there was police training videos in the 90s, such as this one from 1994 titled The Law Enforcement Guide to Satanic Cults, which I will now play a clip from. And I apologize. It's not high quality. Um, But yeah, just take a quick listen to this. There's two different communities that use this park. Uh, one is the uh, pagan or occultic community, and the other community is, of course, the homosexual community. Interestingly enough, uh, they go hand in hand. Okay, yeah, I think that's all I need to play of that. <laughs> yep, the uh, gays and the pagans. There you go. <laughs> Goes hand in hand, you know, devil worship, homosexuality. This is from the 90s, people. This is what they were training police officers in the 90s. By the way, the instructor of this video looks like a bad David Bowie impersonator with a mullet. Well, now I have to watch it. (laughs) I mean, I I like fast forwarded through the, the video just to see what else he had to say. And it was just so ridiculous and laughable. But yeah, after that, like first 10 seconds, it's like, all right, this is total fucking bullshit and this is one of the reasons why our country is still so fucked up to this day all right so let's get back to the fall river cult murders that was a fun little diversion though but i just kind of wanted to set the scene a little bit and show what the climate of the country was around this time not as good as textiles (laughs) Uh, maybe we'll do a, a bonus episode for patreon where i discuss the textile industry In early America. All right. The body of the first victim was found on October 13th, 1979. Doreen Levesque, a 17-year-old runaway from New Bedford, was discovered behind the Diamond Vocational High School. Her wrist had been bound with fishing line and there were signs of sexual torture. She had also been stabbed in the head several times and suffered multiple skull fractures. Police discovered that the young girl was a sex worker and initially suspected one of her clients of committing the murder. However, the county medical examiner determined that the killing was likely committed by multiple people and the forensic evidence also suggested a ritual element to the crime, a possible death by stoning. 
A month after the discovery of Doreen Levesque's battered corpse, a 44-year-old man named Andy Maltese visited the Fall River Police Station. He was there to file a missing persons report for his girlfriend, a 22-year-old sex worker named Bar- Barbara Raposa, who, like Levesque, worked the Bedford Street area. Maltese told police that he feared for Barbara's safety. He then mumbled something about a satanic cult and claimed to have information relating to the Levesque murder. The police, intrigued and desperate for a lead, interviewed Maltese. He claimed he and his girlfriend had dabbled in Satanism and practiced Satanism at the time of her disappearance. Maltese said, Jesus Christ is my personal Lord and Savior. Once I worshiped Satan, but now I worship Jesus. (laughs) I have no idea if he has a Southern accent. I mean, this story takes place in Massachusetts, so. (laughs) (laughs) All right. He added that even though he did not have any direct information, he knows two other cult members who do have information on Donna Levesque's murder. Police were later introduced to the two cult members, Karen Marsden and Robin Murphy. Karen Marsden was a 20-year-old single mother. Like many of her peers who worked in Fall River's red light district, she was a runaway and drug addict. Police accounts describe her as nervous and emotional. Robin Murphy was the exact opposite of Karen. She was cold, deliberate, calculated, and stayed mostly silent during the police interrogation. The younger of the two, Robin, was only 17 at the time. She was a sex worker who aspired to be a pimp. Robin was a street-tough kid who was described as possessing a high degree of intelligence and a domineering personality. Robin stayed silent during the police interview, letting her friend and also roommate and lover, Karen, do all the talking. After intense questioning, Karen finally broke down and said, Carl Drew killed Donna Levesque. Carl Drew was well known to the police. He was a 26-year-old pimp with a violent reputation who ran his business out of the Bedford Street District. Originally from New Hampshire, he had been raised on a small farm. In later interviews, he would speak about a childhood marked by hard labor and physical abuse. One cruel coming-of-age story involved his alcoholic father tying a rope around the terrified boy's ankles and lowering him down into a well to remove a cluster of dead rats. Um, Yeah, it's like a nightmare come to life. Drew eventually ran away from home at the young age of 14 and found his place among Fall River's criminal underground, keeping company with bikers, drug addicts, and sex workers. Besides the fact that Carl Drew was Doreen Levesque's pimp, he also fit the profile of someone who would be capable of committing that type of brutality that was inflicted upon Doreen. Unfortunately, there was no evidence to link him to the murder beyond the unsubstantiated claim of Karen. She referred to Carl Drew as, quote, the devil, and told police of the consequences she expected for her betrayal. She claimed that Drew organized his sex worker ring as a satanic coven that he ruled with an iron fist and would threaten the girls. Karen told the police that if she were to turn up dead, it would be Drew who was responsible. As police got Karen talking more, they came to find out that Drew was not the only dangerous individual in her life. Robin Murphy, the teenage friend and lover, also had a very dark side. 
even before her introduction to the circle of Satanists based out of Bedford Street's red light scene, the young girl had long been dabbling in the occult. She was also described by those around her as being psychologically unstable and prone to violence. Far from being an unwilling participant or minor player, the young girl would soon emerge as possibly the central figure involved in the Fall River cult murders. The next victim was found on January 26, 1980. The frozen and bloodied corpse of Barbara Raposa, Andy Maltese's girlfriend, was found in the woods behind an abandoned printing factory. Her wrists were tied together with fishing line, she had been sexually assaulted, and her skull had been crushed with a rock. The first to be interviewed in connection with Raposa's murder was Andy, the last known person to see her alive. He denied any knowledge of the crime. However, a few days later, he contacted police after receiving details of the murder in a, quote, psychic dream. The details were very specific. Police played along and brought him to the crime scene, allowing him to describe what he had seen in his dream. It turns out that he was quite the clairvoyant, knowing exactly where the woman's body had been discovered, its positioning, time of death, method of killing, and various other details that were not made public at that time. I was wondering if this was all revealed to him in a red room by a small dancing man, but you answered that (laughs) so far, so please continue. Twin Peaks reference, yo. His psychic testimony was indeed helpful to the investigation, and Andy soon found himself in handcuffs and charged with murder. No surprise there. (laughs) Uh, Just a few days after Andy's arrest, Robin Murphy contacted police and offered to testify against Andy Maltese as a witness to the murder. She also claimed to have been present for the killing of Doreen Levesque and agreed to turn state's evidence in that case as well. In exchange for her cooperation, she brokered a deal where she was placed in protective custody and granted immunity in both murders. The story she gave police and later repeated in court was that Andy Maltese had killed Barbara Raposa after discovering she had been cheating on him with another man. Robin claimed to have been with them both on the night of the murder. They had all been partying together while driving around the city, and at some point, the couple started arguing. Andy then parked his car behind the abandoned factory, dragged Raposa out, and raped her. She cried for help, and he proceeded to beat her, first with his fist and then with a rock. Afterwards, he drove off with Robin, leaving his bloody girlfriend to crawl away on her own. She told police that the reason why she didn't go to them sooner was she claimed that Andy had threatened her with the same fate if she talked. It was a testimony full of holes, But given his past history of violent sexual transgressions, Robin claimed that Andy had been sexually molesting her since the age of 11. It would be enough to put Andy Maltese away for the rest of his life. As for the murder of Doreen Levesque, Robin stated that Doreen was an offering of the soul to Satan and that Carl Drew was behind it. Robin claimed that Doreen had recently left Drew's coven with the intention of working the streets on her own. Unfortunately, leaving the group wasn't so easy. Satan had a toll that needed to be paid. Aiming to collect, Drew tracked down his former employee at a Bedford Street bar and forced her into his car. Robin Murphy, Karen Marsden, and a man named Willie Smith, who was Drew's friend, 
and another fellow Satanist came along for the ride. Drew threatened Levesque, telling her that she couldn't afford to work the streets alone and backhanded her across the face. They pulled behind the high school and the two men took the girl under some bleachers out of sight. Robin and Karen stayed with the car. According to her initial statement, Robin heard no screams and claimed to see nothing. After a while, the men returned without Doreen and the four of them drove away. When asked what happened to her, Drew replied, you don't want to know. However, Robin's testimony didn't match up at all with the forensic evidence left behind, which painted an extremely violent picture of sexual assault, prolonged torture, and a very bloody death. It's hard to believe that she heard no screams and saw no evidence of blood on either man. Also, according to her, the whole ordeal was over in a matter of minutes. In fact, she had told police that she wasn't even certain that Levesque had been murdered until she saw it in the newspapers a few days later. Over time, her story evolved to include various gory details and satanic embellishments, all of which had apparently slipped her mind during the initial interview. Robin Murphy wasn't the only cult member talking to the police at this time. Since her initial interview, Karen Marsden continued to stay in touch with detectives working on the case. It's generally believed that she was present for both murders, though her recollections would sharply contrast with Robin's version of the events. While she maintained that Carl Drew was the cult figurehead behind these killings, she pointed to Robin as also playing a direct leading role. In particular, according to Karen, she had instructed all those present to take part in the mutilation of Levesque and Raposa's bodies, possibly for ritual purposes, but more likely to keep their silence by directly involving them in the crimes. Unfortunately, Karen was considered an unreliable witness due to her drug use, erratic behavior, and unwillingness to testify in court. She also seemed to get worse with each meeting. By the time of her final interview, she was on the verge of an emotional breakdown, convinced that she was going to be the next sacrificial murder. In the end, this paranoia would be well-founded, and she was reported missing on February 9, 1980. It wasn't until two months later that a grisly discovery was made in the nearby beach town of Westport. While clearing a parcel of land near Devol Pond, a man stumbled across the top half of a human skull. Police arrived on the scene and conducted a more detailed search of the area. They turned up the decaying carcasses of three cats, sheep bones, and clumps of human hair. They also found some jewelry, a high-heeled shoe, and pieces torn from a woman's sweater. Forensics determined that the skull belonged to Karen Marsden. Soon after, a woman named Maureen Sparta, who was nicknamed Sunny, contacted police and named Robin Murphy as Karen's killer. The intercult killings had gone too far. Sunny was a former sex worker who lived in the Harbor Terrace housing projects near Fall River's waterfront. She hosted a number of satanic gatherings in her apartment and acted as something of a den mother figure to the young sex workers, runaways, and drug users who hung out there. She was also Robin's ex-lover. According to her, Robin had admitted to the murder during a phone conversation. During her interrogation, Robin Murphy broke down and told police everything. 
but her story would continually evolve throughout the trial and be recanted during parole hearings years later. Karen Marsden had become too much of a liability. She was a witness to the killing of Doreen Levesque and was rumored to have gone to the police. Carl Drew decided her fate. With the help of Drew's friend, Carl Davis, he forced Murphy to take part in the murder as an act of loyalty to the cult. Just wanted to give a little heads up. This is where things start to get a little more graphic. But as I'll explain in a minute, a lot of this is possibly not even true. According to her statements, Murphy was made to drag Marsden from the car and pull out her hair. This was followed by a ritual stoning by Drew, Robin, Carol Fletcher, who was another young sex worker, and Davis. Drew then cut off one of Marsden's fingers and broke her neck with his bare hands. While in a trance-like state and under the direction of Drew, Murphy followed up by slitting Marsden's throat with a knife that was handed to her by Davis. The two men then tore the girl's head off and kicked it around the woods. A lot of this is reported to be highly, highly exaggerated, which is normally, if I thought this was true, I might not go into all these details, but there's a lot of evidence showing that Murphy completely like over exaggerated all of this I think to make Drew seem a lot more evil than he was not saying that he was not an evil person Mm -hmm. or a bad person but I I think she wanted to just over exaggerate the satanic um, ritual portion of this this murder oh I I I genuinely hope so for the victim's sake yeah because it's I mean absolutely disgusting that you could do something like this to to someone with such disregard for their body treating them like a a football or just, you know, an object. The frenzied postmortem defilement would reach its climax as homage was paid to Satan. Drew carved an X into Marsden's torso and began to speak in tongues, offering her soul to the Dark Lord. He then dipped his thumb in her blood and made an X on Murphy's forehead. To break one final moral taboo, Murphy was made to perform oral sex on the headless cadaver before it was dumped into the woods, doused in gasoline, and burned to ashes. The more bizarre claims that were made during the Fall River cult murder investigations are likely the works of fiction. As I said, many of the facts are based on the word of a mentally unstable young woman who is known to manipulate those around her. It also eventually came to light that a fair bit of witness tampering, manipulation, and misconduct took place throughout the investigation by police, including detectives who may have helped frame the case based on their own strongly held Catholic beliefs. In a later court testimony, Robin Murphy made similar claims. In addition to the chanting and incomprehensible speech, she noted the use of a skull and a substance she believed to be human blood during the ceremonies. She claimed to have attended 10 such cult gatherings between October 1979 and February 1980, including the two where Levesque and Marsden were killed. Throughout the investigation, police heard numerous references to the Freetown State Forest, where most of the group's activity was centered. 
The forest had its own dark history, serving as the location to a number of violent crimes and tragic events over the years. Some say that the 5,000-acre reservation is cursed land and a hotbed of paranormal activity. Perhaps this is what draws occultists to meet there under the cover of darkness. As expected, the court trials of Andy Maltese, Carl Drew, Robin Murphy, and Carl Davis were a media circus. Headlines screamed of satanic rituals, sexual torture, and cult murder. The public, in turn, remained unconvinced that these individuals had acted alone. Many believed these four individuals were only the tip of the iceberg, and a dangerous cult was still active in the area, providing fodder for sinister urban legends in the years that followed. Anytime a rape, kidnapping, or murder went unsolved in Bristol County, it was the work of this shadowy network, who, when not littering the local nature reserve with candles and mutilated animals, controlled the local drug and sex work trade, a child pornography ring, human trafficking, and any number of other nefarious enterprises. Andy Maltese was the first to stand trial. In January 1981, he was convicted of the first-degree murder of Barbara Raposa and given a life sentence without the possibility of parole. Much of the case against him was based on the witness testimony of, of Robin Murphy. Robin Murphy's lawyer convinced the court that she had been under the powerful influence of the satanic cult at the time of Karen Marsden's murder, allowing her to plead to the lesser charge of second-degree murder in exchange for her testimony against her co-defendants. Additionally, the immunity deal that she struck up with the district attorney's office held and she received no additional charges in connection with the Levesque or Raposa killings. Murphy received a life sentence with the possibility of parole. After spending 24 years behind bars, she was released on June 10th, 2004. However, she violated her parole conditions and was returned to prison seven years later and is currently serving her time in a maximum security prison in Framingham, Massachusetts. The case against Carl Davis fell apart completely. He never stood trial for his alleged role in the abduction and ritual slaughter of Karen Marsden. However, the following year, he was arrested for assaulting Sonny Sparta with a deadly weapon. According to a statement made by Carl Drew on his personal blog, Davis beat the three-month pregnant Sparta and stabbed her in the head with a knife because she had information implicating both him and Robin Murphy in absolving Drew and Karen's murder. He served seven years and is now free. Then we get to Carl Drew, who would go down as the guiding hand of the Fall River cult murders. Through numerous character witnesses, it was pretty well established that he was a man who was feared by basically everyone around him. He also had a felony record with past convictions for assault, weapons possession, and armed robbery. Robin Murphy's testimony painted him as a violent, sadistic killer who acted as the ringleader in these ghastly murders, and the jury was inclined to agree. Further damning testimony came from his ex-girlfriend, a woman named Leah Johnson, who claimed that Drew admitted to her that he had killed a girl along with Davis, Murphy, and another woman, presumably Carol Fletcher, while under the influence of drugs. He also allegedly gave Johnson a diamond ring that had belonged to Karen. 
Despite his unwavering claims of innocence, Drew was convicted in the first-degree murder of Karen Marsden and is serving a life sentence at the MCI in Shirley, Massachusetts, with no possibility of parole. He has filed numerous appeals over the years seeking a new trial. His most recent and final was denied in 2006. Drew's supporters are currently petitioning for the Massachusetts governor to review his case. And this is true. I found a, God, I think it was like GoFundMe to like help get a new appeal for him. And yeah, there's a lot of people who want him out of prison and he maintains his innocence. Um, I'm going to disagree. I think this is a person who should be in prison because despite whether or not he claims to have killed uh, one or any of these women. He clearly has a violent, dangerous history and should probably not be out on the streets. I just wanted to add anybody who uh, gives their girlfriend a gift of a diamond ring that belongs to some dead girl that he may or may not have been involved in murdering. That Yeah, stay in jail, asshole. Yeah. There's some people who just, you know... I believe in second chances, <laughs> but there's some people, it sounds like he's had, you know, second, third, fourth, fifth chances and just has a long rap sheet. And, and he's a sucky gift giver and a sucky boyfriend. <laughs> That's the most important takeaway. Yeah, that was a joke I was <laughs> trying to make. But, uh, anyway. I know. I know you were kidding. Um so far from closing this dark chapter in Fall River's history, the convictions prove to be a legal nightmare that continues to haunt the city right to this day. Allegations of witness tampering, falsified information, insufficient counsel, legal right violations, and police misconduct all loomed heavy as the now closed cases against Maltese and Drew came apart following a shocking admission by Robin Murphy, which I will now read. Uh, so Robin Murphy recanted her entire testimony in an unsuccessful bid for a new trial in 1984. Her testimony is as follows. Quote, I believe Carl Drew was guilty of killing Karen and many, many other women in the area. I believe he belonged in jail, but also knew justice was not taking place. So I made the story up. End quote. She also claimed that she was not actually present for the Raposa murder and admitted to fabricating the testimony that led to Andy Maltese's conviction as retribution for sexually abusing her. Ugh. A number of other witnesses. I mean, yeah, I, who knows at this point what to believe? Everyone's like recanted their stories so many times or there's so many contradictions to what someone else said. I mean... This is just like a horrible, horrible group of people that should probably all be in prison. Right. <laughs> you all suck. Just all of you go to prison. <laughs> it's like the cast of It's Always Sunny to the umpteenth degree of horribleness. Exa oh, my God. Exactly. But like with Satan and yeah, like way worse. Maybe Dennis comes closest to maybe pulling something like this <laughs> off, but not even. Yes. Dennis would be like Carl Drew. D is um, <laughs> Karen or... Uh, Robin Murphy. Robin Murphy. Yeah, she's like, I just want that fucker to go to jail. <laughs> oh, They've destroyed uh. so many of my cars. <laughs> um, 
So a number of other witnesses also recanted their statements claiming that they were made under police pressure or else the influence of drugs, which that's another thing I think that plays a huge part in this is the drug use. Like, who knows what drugs they were on during any of these murders that just either they don't remember what they actually did and maybe some of the stuff is as horrible as they said or maybe they hallucinated a lot of what they thought happened I mean who knows I'm so overwhelmed by all of these details that I'm I like kind of don't even yeah you're right there's so many different anyway keep going I want to hear the rest but oh my god I'm so (laughs) overwhelmed right now (laughs) Um, so Carol Fletcher, a key witness who was allegedly present for Karen Marsden's murder, maintains that she was threatened by police into making false statements in order to convict Carl Drew. She now claims that the murder did not even take place in the woods of Westport. According to her revised version of events, she said that Robin Murphy killed Marsden at the Harbor Terrace housing projects in Fall River, and the body was dismembered and dumped at various locations. Fletcher said, quote, They were fighting and Robin started pulling Karen's hair out of her head. I saw Robin put the knife towards Karen and I ran off. I was scared. End quote. Paul Carey, a detective from the Fall River Major Crimes Division who worked on the case, has his own theory. Carey says, quote, I still believe that Murphy was the real ringleader, not Drew. That Levesque was murdered because Murphy was also in love with her and became jealous when Levesque started seeing Drew. I believe Murphy and Marsden were present when Levesque was killed. I think Murphy killed Raposa because Raposa was in love with Maltese. Murphy admitted that she and Raposa had previously been lovers, and I believe Murphy killed Marzen because of the two previous murders. Marzen was at the scene of those murders, and I believe Murphy knew she was the weak link and might get them convicted. End quote. You know, when you're watching crime shows and they have the um, the board up in the detective's room with all the pieces of like red string connecting you know who goes with what and like the timeline how this took place like this is just so fucking confusing like I wouldn't even know where to start on this there's so many players in this story and he said she said like it's just so hard to keep track of everything although I do believe that this detective's theory sounds pretty plausible and who knows how long it took them to kind of like put all this together and, you know, figure out who exactly was telling the truth and who wasn't or. I'm glad it wasn't just me who was confused by that description. seems very complicated. It is so complicated, but basically he's saying that it's not Carl Drew who is the ringleader behind this. It's, it's Murphy who's the ringleader. All I picture in keeping with our it's always sunny metaphor is that episode <laughs> where Charlie they Charlie and Mac share a job and Charlie's in the mailroom with like the giant ass board of red strings and he's just losing his mind and has drank way too many coffee. That would be like me as a detective <laughs> working on this. But it all comes back to Murphy. It all comes back to Murphy. <laughs> it's true. I think it all does come back to Murphy. I mean... I think, like I said, they're all horrible people and they should all probably just spend the rest of their lives in prison. Yeah, but it's sounding more and more like she is the true ringleader behind all of this. 
I mean, shit, if Seinfeld and his friends in the show can get thrown into prison and after what, like, like uh, indiscretions they've had, this is like that times a thousand. Like, just throw them all in jail. Who cares? Absolutely. Yeah. I'm speaking off the cuff, of course. Naturally, we take all of us seriously. There are people that were really murdered. We get that. But, like, this is insane. This is a crazy story. Anyway, keep going, Sharon. I can't get enough. And the, the, the victims of this story, I think, are just, they're unfortunate people who hooked up with the wrong crowd. Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So, yeah, I'm not, when I say that they're all horrible people, I'm not talking about the victims. Obviously, they're right. exempt. What happened to them is absolutely horrible and heartbreaking. And yeah, they just unfortunately they got in with the wrong group of people or it's like the ending of of clue like the original the very 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 end one the third ending where they're like he's like okay who did it and they're all pointing at each other like he did that's how i feel like they all are like all of the accused are just in a line Mm -hmm. pointing at each other yelling and to confuse things even more, Mindy, there are some who say that the Fall River cult never really existed. Oh. It was simply a product of the satanic panic era made up entirely by the police and tabloid media to sensationalize the grisly slayings of three young sex workers who may or may not have dabbled in the occult. Carl Drew himself denies being involved in any such group. He said, quote, I was thrown into the middle of a mass nightmare that involved macabre accusations of devil worship and human sacrifice. Totally off the wall accusations that were right out of some thriller novel. None true as far as I was involved and nothing like what is being said. End quote. The Fall River cult, if it existed at all, seems to have been a relatively small and informal grouping that consisted of perhaps up to a dozen people all seemed to have an interest in practicing evil through devil worship. The details of the three killings that were attributed to the group are murky at best. Were these cult murders in the sense that they were collectively organized and carried out by the group as part of a broader satanic agenda? Or were they committed by individuals from within this social circle who acted with their own personal motives? Either way, it would not be wrong to conclude that the particular version of Satanism the group allegedly practiced, coupled with the criminal culture brought in by the participants themselves, provided fertile ground, or else the perfect cover for these brutal killings to take place. Mm. Mm-hmm. Totally, I agree. Executives of the cable network Epics have announced they are developing a new documentary series focusing on the Fall River cult murders. The series is being produced by Pyramid Production and Blumhouse Television. James Buddy Day, whose past credits include the documentary The Lovers Lane Murders, also Manson, The Women, and The Disappearance of Susan Cox Powell, which I believe we've watched that one, Mindy, when we were doing our research on the uh, Susan Cox uh, Powell episode that we did. Susan Cox Powell. Why is that ringing a bell? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I believe we did. <laughs> yes, for sure. 
we watched, I think, everything we can get our hands on uh, involving her disappearance. Um, but he is serving as the series director and executive producer on this new documentary on the Fall River cult murders. So not sure exactly when that is coming out, but I will definitely let everyone know when I find out. Um, definitely looking forward to watching that and seeing how he's able to organize this big mess of a crime spree. I mean, this is, it's very confusing <laughs> as, as you have heard. So I'm hoping he does a really good job with it. Um, if Fall River, Massachusetts sounds familiar to you, it's probably because it is best known for the birthplace of Lizzie Borden and it is also where the 1892 axe murders of her father and stepmother took place. Uh, Borden was later tried and acquitted of those murders. But yeah, this town has a, uh, a long history of infamous murders, so... Not someplace I would want to live. Yeah, yeah. Well, Massachusetts, I actually quite love. It's quite beautiful there, I think. But um, yeah, it doesn't have a great track record with like murder and and weird shit and crazy people. Isn't that always the way though? Is like the most beautiful places have the worst crimes. I mean, look at the Pacific Northwest. You have right. yeah Bundy. And you have the Green River Killer and all these other famous serial killers up in that area. I mean, it just seems like, I don't know, yeah. the more beautiful places, the more tragic it is for some reason. Even on um, Unsolved Mysteries that we had talked about, I don't know how many episodes ago, but there's the one episode, uh, the, the revamped version that's on Netflix, I should say, just to specify. Mm -hmm. There's the one episode about the UFO happening that happened in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, which literally was a town away from where I did summer stock at, during college one summer. And like, I know the main road that they were seeing all of those like UFO sightings on very, very well and drove it many, many times in pitch dark at night. But I loved living there, so I don't. I don't know. Maybe that's why I'm so intrigued by Massachusetts, because maybe it's a hotbed. But yeah, I don't know. Salem witch trials. I mean, the list goes on and on. Yeah. So the trick is just live somewhere that's ugly. <laughs> yeah, I was just saying, well, if you're looking for a peaceful existence, maybe don't head out to the East Coast. <laughs> I don't know. We live in the Midwest, and we have our own share of serial killers here too. So that's mm. true. That's true. Well, wow, that was a lot to uh, untangle there, Sharon. Thank you for for telling us about that. I'm so overwhelmed. You're right. I, I, I can't wait to see what this new documentary does with this. I, I hope everyone was able to follow along <laughs> with that. I know I was like, um, I, I should actually probably um, cite my sources because oh. there was a lot. Um, let's see. Yeah, I was I was trying to piece together all, all this information from so many different sources, and it was it was really hard to do. Um, but we have onlyinyourstate.com, cultnation.com, heraldnews.com, uh, Gizmodo, Murderpedia, southcoasttoday.com. Uh, what else do we have? Wikipedia, Vox, uh, People and medium.com as well so i have a question quite a lot of sources for this mm -hmm. i'm sorry um 
did you who was it that you said had they they got out of prison and they had their own blog oh yeah so carl drew has a personal blog i obviously i had to omit a lot of detail for time constraint reasons um but i do believe he he does have an online blog possibly or um i do remember on murderpedia let me see if I can go to that. He has um, a bunch of writings about his side of the story. I just found it. Um, it's pretty. It's a pretty uh, rudimentary looking blog. Not that that means anything, but it's uh, the header is Carl Drew, an evil woman's patsy. And uh, the URL is carldrewsfight.com. And I, the reason I sound like I'm about to start laughing, I can't help it. The guy's got a mullet. And it says, hi, I'm Carl Drew and this is my story. Again, the Bristol County legal system acts blind when Carl Drew is put before them. The justice system? Just another mafia. Yeah. And then there's... So this looks um, great. Yeah, this is on... If you go to Carl Drew's page on Murderpedia, you can find this. And it's, let's see, one, two, three, four, five. It's very long. Very long. But it's his story. Um, and then there's carldrewsfight.com. Yeah, that's what I'm on. Yeah. yeah. And if you scroll down to the bottom, Mindy, there's a picture of him where he looks kind of like um, Bob from Twin Peaks. It's kind of creepy. I was just like, holy shit, is that Frank Silva? Oh, no, that's him. That's Carl Drew. Oh my um, god. Oh my god. Right? Oh, oh my <laughs> Doesn't god. Doesn't look like him. <laughs> we have to post this. No, he legit maybe it's like a Halloween picture where he was like going as Bob for Halloween. I swear to God. No, I think that's him in prison. Unless I don't know. Do they have Halloween in prison? I don't I don't know if you're allowed do to dress up. Do they have Halloween in prison? That's the quote of the day. They, yeah, right. Do they dress up in prison and go like trick-or-treating around the cells? I really hope they do. I mean <laughs> That'd be a nice treat. That is really crazy, actually. Like, I wasn't expecting... Because the other picture they have at the top of Murderpedia on his page is the one that's on his blog. And I was like, oh, okay. I mean, whatever. He he looks somewhat... He's, like, cleaned up, you know, whatever. And you know when someone says, oh, look at this picture. It looks like blah, blah, blah. You're going, okay, yeah, right. How much does... I swear that reaction was very genuine. It's actually kind of scary like I would have yelled louder but that would probably upset Spencer's eardrums when he listens to this later so I need to read through this blog later I actually forgot about this um and I never came back to it but I did see it when I was doing my research and I was like wow this is really really long I'm gonna read this another time (laughs) we should post it because I should also add that it's so articulately written and I don't know if you can (laughs) hear the sarcasm dripping from my voice but there's a lot of bolded text, a lot of it, a lot of, yeah. Oh, it's, it's wonderful in every way, shape, or form. <laughs> and by wonderful, I mean terrible. Maybe I'll, I'll read this tonight is my bedtime story. I know. Now I'm like starting. We're still doing an episode and I'm falling down a rabbit hole. Um, <laughs> thank you, Sharon, right. for that, though. I'm utterly dumbfounded and like overwhelmed by all that information, but in a good way, because this is fascinating. Yeah, I just think that satanic cults are cautionary tales that Christians 
tell their children to to scare them into being good people and you know watching out for like stranger danger and um yeah it's it's all modern day witch hunt as far as i'm concerned i don't know what the exact uh percentage is but there's very 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 few murders that are actually committed by so-called quote satanists yeah and i i also think that like especially uh, we we've done not any really deep dives into this but like i know sharon you covered at one point we talked about like the pentagram and how everyone's always as soon as they see it it's like ooh, double worship and really know the origins of the pentagram are actually good not bad i also think i agree that i think some of this stuff is scare tactics uh to keep children or the public or whatever you know in fear or in check or whatever but i also think it's a great like a satanist cult made me do it is a great excuse for like any genuinely psychotic person who wants to be a killer but doesn't want to get caught because easily be like but i was brainwashed by a satanist cult not that that's what all cult members do or what happens to all cult members um i know that that's not the case and a lot of cult members get taken in very innocently but I think in terms of like saying you're with a satanist cult you're right I think it's it's either an excuse to do bad deeds or an excuse to keep people in check so that they don't be sinning non-christian horrible people I don't know I, now I'm I don't know what I'm trying to say either but I agree with you <laughs> poor Spencer That's so much right. for keeping this articulate <laughs> all right well that is gonna wrap up the story of the Fall River cult murders. Um, thank you all for listening to us and join us next week for Mindy's discussion on realism. And I'm so sad that October is officially now over. Um, but tomorrow may actually be the scariest day of the year. It is election day. So mm. if you haven't already, we hope that you all vote tomorrow. Please vote. And as we have said before, this may be the most important election in your lifetime. We know that both candidates suck, but there is definitely one that sucks less. There is a clear candidate that is not a bully who, if elected, will hopefully start to bring this country together instead of furthering the divide and also start to enact policies and laws that will benefit everyone. Um, Don't know if it's going to happen, but we can hope, right? Yeah, I just like to add, if you have not already voted and you still have that chance to do so, um, just thinking when you're in the booth, you know, will what I'm supporting hurt other people? Because there's been a lot of, I feel like in the past few years, um, it's me that matters and nobody else. Like as long as I'm like this lack of care for other people, either other people, you know, or just other people in general and Unfortunately, we only have one planet and it doesn't work so well if everybody has that mentality and we all have to share one planet to live on. So just remember that your choices affect others, whether you know them or not. And that's an important thing, even if it's something you don't see in your lifetime. I agree. All right. We'll stop lecturing you all. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Off soapbox officially. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But as always, you can write us your... Um, cult stories, your ghost stories, other creepy stories that we can share on our show at whorestalkwhor at gmail.com. Please subscribe to our show on whatever you use to uh, stream your podcast. 
review us. It definitely helps us get more exposure. Uh, and that is good for us. <laughs> so, That's right. And it's really easy to do. So please, 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 if you do nothing else, do those two things. Subscribe to us and rate and review us. And also please be kind to each other and be safe. That's right. And as always, thanks, thanks for, for getting, getting creepy, creepy with, with us. us. Sharon, you want a beer? Uh, oh my God.